Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, I have three guests with me,、uh, Mario, Paco, and Raúl, who are functional programmers in the Kotlin community. All speak Spanish and are joining me today for a talk around functional programming and some interesting news that they have to share. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Harry. Hello. Hello, everyone. Thank you. So around December or so,、uh, some conversations sparked around why are there kind of like two functional libraries、uh, in Kotlin and what does one offer over the other、uh, and In what I think is one of the nicest things that could have happened in the community is that you guys decided to actually work together, right? So, can one of you tell me the story about this? Sure,、uh, I'll, I'll speak to that.、Uh, basically,、uh, I think most of us have、uh, experience from from the Scala community and other communities where there is、uh, multiple functional programming libraries, and because these are usually used as foundation libraries to build other things. Eventually, they become an issue for users and the industry, where they have to support both of them. And you know, there is、uh, binary incompatibilities between other libraries that offer support for a different version, and so on. So we decided that it would make sense for、uh, to make it easier for users in Kotlin to basically,、uh, you know, see where the differences were and see where we could compromise and potentially think of a merge and and then do something new for the community. So essentially, what you guys decided to do is join efforts and create a single library, right? Joining the efforts of both functional and category. Yes, that's correct. Okay, and and what is this new library called? It's called Arrow. Arrow,、uh, meaning what? What where, where? What is the reference of Arrow? Well, usually in functional programming, errors are considered like dimorphisms in in categories. So it has like a meaning. That is also attached to the functional programming world and concepts, and we thought that instead of like preserving one of the library names like functional or category, it would make sense to to rename to send a message that none absorb the other one. It's more of a let's unite forces and let's start something new. That it's、uh, you know good for everyone. So in the world of VCs and mergers and acquisitions, this wasn't so much an acquisition but an equal merger, so to speak, right? Yeah, that's correct. I would、okay. say so. Okay, so who, who's the CEO? Who's the CFO? <laughs> who's the CTO? No. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we're more of a libertarian community. Yes. <laughs> no structures. Yeah. Oh damn! And I was, and here's me thinking like, oh, could I? You know, you you guys got to start getting some VC fund. <laughs> no, no, get, no, no. Get those rounds. I actually read an article recently that said、um, functional programming is now mainstream. I'm like, you know, you got you got a cool、um, logo which、uh, I've seen. And you got a cool name, which is Arrow. Like all you need is a cool website, and you can get VC funding. And you can like go around and say, you know, functional programming is in. This is going to be the next best thing, right? It's now mainstream. Yeah. So we do yeah, have you, an awesome website. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there, there you go. So you don't actually need anything else, right? It's、yeah. just like we just read it. You don't even you need a、people. business model. You know people, right? You just、yeah. just put it. Yeah, just throw it our way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and when they ask、uh, what the business model is, you're like, yeah. Hey, what about this? the The whole concept of functional programming often is uh is related to they say pipelining functions, right? 
you could actually kind of like interleave advertising in each of those pipelines. And <laughs> <laughs> meaning keep oh, the that currency. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's just a dark future ahead of us. Anyway, getting back to programming. So this is very cool because uh, I know that I spoke initially to you, Paco, some time ago, right? When I started to dig into, because I, I've known Functional for for a while now, right? And I've known some of the things that it offers and that. And when I started to talk to you some time ago, when I was you know, diving a little bit deeper into category, um, one of the topics that you and I discussed was like, what exactly does category uh, provide to me over uh, Functional, right? I mean... And, and you had a response which was kind of like, you know what, if you're happy with what functional provides you, which is optional and either's and things like this, then you don't need category, uh, right? Which is, it's fair enough. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the, the response of if you're happy with, with one programming language is you, you don't need Kotlin. So now that you've joined, like what, where, where is the, the value added here for someone that, for instance, is familiar with, with functional and is not familiar with category? I mean, what is it that the library as a whole called Arrow is now providing people? Cool. So the main idea is that we have a set of abstractions that sit on top of those data types, right? So what it is either, what is optional, what is try, validated, those are called data types, right? They are um, small abstractions that represent one code pattern. It would be something similar to a side pattern that is generalized. It's like either is a branching code, right? You will have if, this, else, that, you can encode that as an either. If you have absence, you can do optional. If you have code that can throw an exception, it's try, right? What happens if you want to write code that has one more layer of abstraction and can be interpreted for either one of them? So you don't have to um, commit yourself to either of the abstractions up until you start, um, you decide how the code runs. And this is really useful for library makers because it allows you to replace concretion. And we're talking concretions like Rx Java, concretions like Kotlin X coroutines, concretions like, um, I don't know, um, uh, architecture components with an abstraction that is called a monad, a monad error um, that allows you to run that code against either one of them, depending on what your library or what your, um, actually you're the client of the library. So depending on what your application or what your program or what your backend is using. Okay, so but let's let's go step back a second, okay, and and just make uh, clear to some of our listeners that might not be familiar with functional some of those data types that we've been talking about, right? So, and and then let's build on that and see what your what cat category brings to Arrow and, and what it adds on. So, one of the things that you mentioned is that you know functional has a bunch of data types, such as for instance. Uh, try or either or things like that. I don't know if try is part of functional, but either. Uh, so Mario, you know, you're the author of um, functional. Can you give me an example of one of these data types and what exactly it provides to a developer that is not currently using this? In, in functional, we have option, either, try, and so have a uh, that a type called disjunction that is like uh, by a specific kind of either. Uh, we bring those things to Arrow, uh, but also we bring a lot of 
functional utilities, for example, curing uh, partial application, memorization, um, another kind of like building blocks for creating new functions using other functions as uh, data. That is particularly what is the um, starting point of functional programming. Is Okay, so just to concrete on one example, right? Most people or the majority of listeners are probably familiar with optional because it comes in Java 8 and uh, it's kind of represented in, in some way, shape or form in, in Kotlin. So you spoke about some other data types, uh, which is, for example, either or try. Now, how is either, for instance, different from optional? The difference is that optional represents the presence or absence of a data. Either it represents one of two datas. Okay. So you're essentially saying that I can have a function, for instance, that returns either one type or another type, yes, right? Yes, exactly. I can return, for example, uh, a name for a user, or if I don't have the name, I could return uh, his ID as number. Okay. Right. So how is that different from for instance, in Kotlin, doing a, a data class that is, uh, you know, has nested classes and ha is sealed so that you kind of close the hierarchy. How is it different? Because when you have data, is similar. The problem with that uh, or the difference within data classes and either is that data classes don't offer you abstractions or how to operate inside that data. And in either we have that kind of um, functionality. In either you can map inside that, in either you can flat map you can transform in other kind of um, other other kind of data classes with uh, mono transformers. There is a lot of things that you can do that now Arrow could offer you. Okay, so essentially, this is you're saying that you you're building a generic type of uh, uh, what would be a sealed data class for people to understand, right? And then you offer uh, functionality to operate on these, right? Yes. Okay. And then there's another construct that you spoke about, which is try, which I believe that uh, category also has this. Uh, Raul, do you want to give us uh, an explanation of what try is? It's a data type that allows you to uh, close over uh, operations that can potentially throw exceptions. And it will catch the exception inside and then place it in a, as you mentioned earlier, it's a sealed hierarchy with success and failure. Failure, you have on the left side the exception. And then on the on the right side, you will have like the success or the positive uh, result. So try is more or less like either, but it's uh, fixed to throwable and meant to be used in cases where you just want to handle exceptions. But the important piece where we're fusioning functionality and, uh, and category into Arrow and what this brings to the mix is that you had try before in both libraries. But now when you move a try uh, to Arrow, you also have additional features such as uh, for comprehensions and applicative style builders, which allow you to compute through those uh, computations in an imperative style, one instruction at a time without nested functions. And that style is much more easier to, you know, to grasp to, to people that are getting started because they see the instructions one after the other, uh, top to bottom. Okay, so to recap, try is a specific case of either where 
uh, it actually has a result or uh, throws an exception, right? Yes, and, and you yeah. were saying that the convention is that the right is the, the value and the left is in case of exception, right? It's, it's not really called right or left. It's, it's called success and failure, but internally it's represented as such. You can think of either and try as the same thing, but for convenience for people, they will use uh, try because it's already set to, to throwable. And therefore, they can, you know, just do a computation without worrying about it throwing exceptions. If an exception is thrown, try will capture and put it as a value. So it will translate exception throwing code into values that you can just look at and then continue the flow without try catch. Okay. So we've got a series of basic data constructs, which, you know, uh, I, I, it's a little bit difficult, obviously, on a podcast to uh, describe code, but I think that it's pretty clear for people how they could actually put this to use, right? Me as a, as a user, not as a library writer, I know exactly how I can now take advantage of data classes, uh, well, sealed data classes, and now you're saying, well, Arrow now ships that out of the box for me, so now I can have things like optional or, or, or either, or when I'm working with exceptions, I can have try. And now, uh, Paco, you said that, right, but, and this was kind of something that both Arrow provided and functional. But you said that now what Arrow has is some other things that Category brought, which was abstractions on top of this, uh, which are useful for library writers. Now, before we get into the library writer parts, uh, and I don't know if you can actually explain this without, without mentioning them, but could you give me an example of when these abstractions will be useful for me as as someone that is just writing code that is not doing a library, for instance? Correct. So I said library writers because that was that was one of the use cases. But actually, when you are in the app, you most probably have something that is an API that interfaces with, let's say, the network, right? Which is part of. Um, an external library, let's say, and it's gonna throw exceptions and it's gonna have their own set of like rules and, and everything else. And whenever you're creating this API, you have to bring it internally to your own abstractions. So you're gonna have a try, or you're gonna have an either, or you're gonna have something else, uh, like observable or um, deferred, right, from Kotlin X coroutines. So what we tell you, or what we bring you, is a way of defining one single abstraction that can be replaced with either one of the specific implementations, four of those, like try either with a, either when with one side is an exception, observable, deferred, or any abstraction that you have on your library, as long as you write the, um, the bridge or the adapter, which is called an instance. So you can write your own API where in the future you can replace your specific concrete type um, in a way that you can move it across different applications or in a way that in the future if you change your library from like <coughs> Rx1 to Rx2, you instead of having to replace every single point of origin, you just have to replace the single code that passes that initial value, that initial abstraction to the function. I was just going to say, basically, it allows you to decouple your program declaration from how it's run on the runtime. And that, that is extremely useful, for example, for testing. If you are if you have production code that depends on async and concurrent stuff, you don't need to mock that or have that runtime in the test. You can just simply say, my entire program, instead of running async, it's just going to run to, say, 
try or either, which are monads that are synchronous. And then you are still unit testing and trying your entire business logic, but instead of having to, you know, like mock potentially uh, threading or some other machinery related to async uh, programming, you can just use uh, that data type. And in the case of library authors, then that opens the door for you to expose your library to any data type that the consumer wants to use. So instead of coding your library to completable future or defer or observable, you can code your library to a generic representation, which the user can then just say, I want this library to run on uh, defer or observable. Okay. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here with you guys, okay? Because um, we'll get into the details of how this is actually implemented uh, because it's 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 not magic, obviously. But before touching on that, let me just say, let, let me take your example where you're saying, you know, the test example. Yeah, when you are working, for instance, with uh, uh, Rx, uh, when your your production code is in one way, and of course, when you want to test, you want that to be synchronous. Now, there's built-in uh, constructs inside Rx for cases where you want to actually run unit tests. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And what you're saying is that instead of using those, I could potentially, essentially, using these abstractions have my test coded in exactly the same way as my production code would be and just switching out the different data type? Is that what you're saying? Yes, in a way, but the most important thing is the abstraction itself over the, the business logic from the actual implementation. What it really allows you to do is to have your entire application programmed in such a way that you don't have framework integration specifically in your business logic. So it's like separation of concerns on steroids. Like I have my program here that is described in, in such a way where we only are concerned about sequential and parallel composition of the instructions that are being executed. And then I have in this other way, the instances or the adapters that say how the framework, uh, the underlying framework is gonna interpret those things. And, and that gives you the possibility to then come back and say, okay, I wanna change something about my business logic and your code is not cluttered with integration code with you know different libraries or whatever you're using to implement it. Fair enough. But let me ask another question. If I'm, for instance, using Rx, what you're saying is that, if, if I understood you correctly, uh, that I could potentially abstract Rx here that tomorrow I could use coroutines? Is, is that what you're saying? Yes. yes, that's exactly correct. The same syntax applies to all frameworks. Because instead of using the frameworks or the library syntax, what you end up using is either the monad comprehensions or the applicative or the abstractions that provide you the behavior of how your code is uh, being run. And then the different adapters to the frameworks will actually take care of executing your instructions into that particular runtime. That's one of the features, but not, you know, not all of them. There is a lot of other features too. When we speak about the abstractions, we are speaking about a really finite number of, AP of uh, methods and each one of them is being tested to death, basically. So when we say monad, we are actually saying it has flat map, right? It, is, it has a chaining of operations. When we say functor, it means that uh, it's a container type and the, con and the, uh, the value inside the type can be changed. Um, those operations, there's only one or two pair abstraction. 
and they can be tested because there's a finite number of operations that you can do with them. So when Raul says you don't tie yourself to framework code, it means that we are only speaking in terms of like, hey, this is sequential, this is parallel, um, this is changing the value, and there's a very finite number of operations that are very framework apps, uh, very framework independent. There are the ones that you use most of the time. So we code against those that have already been tested in the adapters with these generic tests for everybody. And then you can just go into your app, use them directly, and you know for a fact that they are going to be behaving the same way for either one of the abstractions. So that, that's a lot of value in there. But from the perspective of, like, if I'm writing an application, there's certain patterns that I have to follow when I'm using Rx. And there's... And a completely different paradigm shift when I'm using something like crow routines. Are you saying that using these data abstractions that Arrow uh, provides, I can completely abstract all of that away? I, I no longer have to model my code in an imperative or a, or a observable format, so to speak? So if exactly. you yeah. if you care mostly you care about like you don't necessarily care about you're using merge latest or you're gonna be using regular merge or anything of the sort that's that's something that is very specific to a framework if you care about like what does my program do oh I want to be running these five operations in parallel I want to be running this operation sequentially and whenever I get the result I want to wrap the errors those are generic behaviors that can be abstracted over if you want some specifics for from the framework. So Kotlin Xcoroutines, for example, has very little to non-specific um, behaviors, right? Uh, observables on RxJava have a bunch of operators that, yes, you, you cannot abstract over all of them. But if you're not interested, if you're interested in a solution for concurrency, which is the main use case for RxJava, it's not used for reactive programming most of the time. Some people are using it simply as a way to access threading and as a way of doing uh, parallel parallelism and sequence and everything else. So if you're using Rx just for that, you can replace it with coroutines. You can replace it with IO, which is the solution that Arrow provides. Uh, you can replace it with anything else. If you're using something that is specific, like timers or, or like merge latest or something like that, yes, those are not abstracted over. But uh, the expectation is that most applications or most programs, they are not doing those advanced behaviors because, as you say, you have to structure your app around it. And many, many companies are really wary that new programmers and everybody else are not capable of following that trend. They don't want to have an app that only a few people can, can uh, you know, write in. Fair enough. I can completely abstract away Rx versus coroutines. But the question is, in real life, I mean, this is going to come at a cost, right? Because one of the things that, and, and you can explain in a minute how how you actually do this, I assume that it's introducing a, a, a new set of types, a new set of um, f f behavior that that is specific to Arrow, which I have to learn um, as, as the cost of eliminating the, the Rx model or the coroutines to, to be able to abstract this. So I need to be able to justify this, right? And take, for instance, the example of uh, ORMs, right? But when ORMs first came about, we spent a hell of a lot of time abstracting ORMs, losing some of the functionality that ORMs provided with the hope that one day, if we were ever going to replace an ORM, we didn't have much of the framework or the ORM code tied to our application. 
The reality proved that we hardly ever do these replacements. So my question is, how often do you feel that these replacements would actually happen in real life that would justify me having to learn all these new abstractions? And the second question is, I'm assuming that this isn't one the only benefit that that using something like Arrow is going to provide me, right? That there are other things? Yes, uh, Arrow is going to give you a, a lot of other benefits. This is just one part of it, which is the type classes and instances module. And uh, But there is a, a bunch of other modules like optics. Uh, you know, there is uh, things or utilities to work with immutable data classes and sealed classes. Uh, from functional, we've uh, inherited all of the uh, extension functions for the actual function building, pipelining. So there is a lot of utilities. You can think of Arrow more of a, <clears throat> a library for abstracting. It's more of a library that complements the Kotlin standard library, adding functional programming concepts to it. But it's really a companion library, and it's meant to be a foundation library that has a bunch of different utilities. Abstraction is uh, just one of them. Now back to the question where, when would I use uh, these abstractions? The, I think the key is like, there's several reasons why you would use them. It's not just to replace framework code. One of them is uh, when you go to abstractions and you go into this uh, more of an abstract level, the methods and, and functions that you use are more constrained. So you are more uh, likely to not make mistakes because you're using fully tested functions and data types and abstractions that are uh, tested over mathematical laws, which we have in Arrow. So for example, if you're using flat map or, or flatten from Monad, uh, we have Monad laws there that test rarely all of the properties of the, the, the data type is adhering correctly to those properties. So you have those guarantees that your program is gonna be more correct. And you also don't have uh, unsafe APIs which uh, you are frequently tempted to potentially call to get work done. So you're more constrained in that sense and potentially producing more correct code. Having said that, that's not for everyone. I mean, there's use cases where you just want to go down to framework code or you want to go down to, you know, the most uh, low level thing possible because you need high performance, whatever the reason is. Uh, Arrow is just complementary to that. It's not attempting to replace the way people write code today. And how does it make these abstractions over the actual data types? I mean, how what are you doing? Because I mean, I'm assuming that Kotlin doesn't, as a language, provide support for this out of the box, right? Which these abstractions over data types are called what? They're called type classes. Um, it uses a, a representation of higher kinds, which is a if you think about option or list, uh, you will call those higher kinds because they're parametric to to a <clears throat> to a type. So, for example, you say list of int, that's the actual type. But if you just say list, we're thinking of a container that has a hole on it. And Kotlin currently doesn't support higher kinds uh, syntactically in the language, but it's possible to emulate them. Perhaps Paco wants to talk about that because he did a a lot of that work in in Arrow. So the, the one thing that I wanted to point out is that about the abstractions, we have a lot of libraries right now. I'm just checking one that is called, well, awesome Rx Java, you know, one of those lists of libraries. We have Rx Binding, uh, Reactive Network, Rx Palette, you know, Rx Java File, Rx Tuples, whatever, Relay. There's a bunch of them. 
And now that coroutines have come out, we have to go and rewrite every single one of them from Rx into uh, Kotlin, uh, into coroutines, right? So if those libraries were written using against Arrow, against those abstractions, we wouldn't need to rewrite our whole um, library set every time we change one of the main frameworks, right? So the one advantage that Coroutines has over Rx is that the style feels more fluent, uh, suspension and everything, it feels more natural for people that come and do imperative programming. The problem is they're losing all those libraries that they like. And that's a problem because that means a bunch of people like us is going to have to go back and rewrite a bunch of things. And over time, you know, having to change frameworks or three or four versions, it puts a lot of toll. So if you have a, an abstraction that exists at Kotlin level and you say, hey, for every single implementer of this abstract data type, um, for every single implementer of this data type, you, or you, my library will work then people don't care if they're, you're going to be using something that is inherited from Java, something that is Rx or everything of the sort. So that was the selling point for abstractions in general. It's not only for uh, your own use or for replacing one value with another. It's also being able to be more generic in a more general level. That said, how is that achieved? We are using the, this higher kind uh, generation, which means we create an abstraction over containers. And those containers means that everything that has one or several generic types can be represented using an interface. Those interfaces can be casted then to the specific types. So we can have something that is like higher kind of optional, and that optional doesn't necessarily have to contain a value. Uh, so you know when you have a function, a single function that can be generified on one parameter, right? So what you can have is a class that is generified on the container, and then the function is generified on the content. One example of this is map. You can have a functor, which is a class that is generified on the container, let's say, list. And then it has a single function map that goes from A to B. So the generic types of the actual function are A and B. And the return of that function is actually the container list of B. Uh, it happens the same if you wanted to say, okay, I'm going to have a functor of option. So it's going to be a functor of the, the, the generic type representing an option, and then the function is going to be from A to B, and the end result is going to be an option. So you can have that generic over containers, and you can do that representation, and you can do the, the downcasting safely. We have all the machinery required for that. We have been working to bring that back into the language. And that, uh, I think Raul can talk a little bit more about it. He's driving that initiative, the, uh, the famous Keep 87. Yeah, well, well basically we're proposing that Kotlin supports directly uh, type classes, which is basically allowing people to write code that targets the containers. So you could say, I'm gonna write functor as a type class that has map, which uh, we have in, in Arrow. Uh, the syntax is not pretty because of the lack of language support, but if it was supported for the language, then we could just create instances for list, uh, set, and all the different collections and data types, and then you will only have to write map just once. And that will be automatically, you know, implemented for everyone. Because Kotlin doesn't currently have higher kinds, we are forced to re-implement every single combinator in the data types or parent interfaces like iterable. 
but with uh, type classes, uh, we can abstract that away and then write code that is fully polymorphic and then that can act over multiple data types at once and therefore creating less bytecode and, um, and just a single representation of what map or flat map or filter or exist, all of those means. Because those are well-known combinators that are usually expressed in type classes and not directly on the data types as we find in, in Kotlin. Yeah. Could you explain what a combinator is since you mentioned it? Oh, yeah. So, so, sorry. Combinator meaning like any function or method that you find in collections that will take uh, a higher order function. And an example of that would be like map that you allows you to map the contents of a collection or filter to discard some of the items. All of those are frequently called in functional programming combinators, but you know you can call them methods, functions, it doesn't really matter. One other thing that you mentioned previously was um, four comprehensions. Uh, could you explain what that is? Yes, so basically if you come from uh, a functional language that supports four comprehensions like Haskell or Scala, there is like a notation similar to for loops where it's really uh, just... Uh, like if you if your data type has flat map, for example, list has flat map, option has flat map, try has flat map, uh, that basically allows you to sequence computations one after another. So four comprehensions uh, give you uh, imperative syntax to do that in a very easy way, such as that if you have on the right side, say for example, a list of one, two, three, the binding on the left side that you bind to will be each one of the items. And with that, you can compute uh, in an imperative fashion, top to bottom. But really, what's happening underneath it is that it's calling flat map. And in error, we have four comprehension implemented over suspended coroutines with continuations, and that are generalized to all monads. So once you learn how to sequence over uh, list or option, then you can do the same for every other data type with the same syntax without learning new APIs. And I think that's one of the key values of functional programming. Instead of learning multiple libraries and multiple data types APIs, you learn a single one, which is that of the functional type classes. And once you learn that API, you can apply it to all different programming problems. But at the end of the day, when you're writing all of your business code and, and your business logic, you are working with your concrete data types, right? You're not you're not losing any of that by just simply referring to uh, the actual, you know, properties or, or of a data class, for instance, as just value and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you work with them, but you don't. Ex you normally don't expose them directly. So if you're saying, if I'm gonna do some async programming, I can. I have two options. I can just use async await if I'm using coroutines, or I can use Rx or whatever. But I might choose to use instead of that async, which is a type class, that some of the methods that, you know, give you a synchronous type behavior. And then I can say at the edge of my application, which is also a goal in functional program, is to defer execution to a single point. In that point, I can say my program is parametric to uh, defer. And then when those, when the program runs, all of those method and function calls will underneath delegate to the routine system for the behavior. So your program really doesn't use the deferred data type explicitly, but it's backed by it once you make it concrete in one point of the application.
So basically, you're you're coding with classes and with uh, functions that are always uh, parametric to a to a type, and that type, let's call it f, is f all the way in your application. But there is a point in your application where you say, okay, I want to run this entire thing, and here's what I tell it that use defer or use option or use list. So you can always mix and match, right? So if you want to use a specific API for observables and you say, hey, my whole program is going to be implemented in an abstract way, except for these one or two functions, which force me to run the whole program over observable. And a program here may not be like the whole application, but maybe like a single function or a piece of business logic. Um, the point is, if you're going to change your, if you're going to change your framework again, uh, you're notified about the parts of the of the um, the parts of your API that have to be rewritten because it do, they contain uh, framework specific information. So, yeah, we can we can go back to the point of like how often do you change frameworks? But uh, the answer is now more commonly or more often or easily than what it used to be, and maybe that's a good reason enough for people to start worrying less about like adding these abstractions or adding these new frameworks because they are just gonna, you know, you're gonna commit to them forever and you're gonna have to maintain like RX 1.1 for the next 10 years or something like that. And so here's the thing, there's more chances though of uh, someone switching or more usefulness of switching from Angular to Vue to React to Vue to Meteor to name the flavor of the week front end framework. <laughs> then I'm guessing changing ORMs or uh, libraries in terms of how you do asynchronous programming, I, I would yeah. say, right? Um, but okay, cool. Yeah. Well, I do want to finish uh, by asking one last question because we are already at like uh, running over time. But all of you, I assume, have background from Scala. Is that, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, no, no. <laughs> who, what? Not me. Not I don't. You. I've never done Scala. Okay. So, but Raul, you have a Mario. You have, and, and I'm guessing you still do, right? Yes. 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 So, that's correct. You know why? Why do this? Why bring this to Kotlin? If, for instance, you're saying that. I'm assuming that all of these things already exist in Scala because you initially even said that there's multiple libraries in Scala that uh, allow this. So given you're doing Scala, why not just stick with Scala that provides you this? Why do it for Kotlin? Well, uh, first of all, we love Kotlin. That's why we want to contribute to the yeah. community. And Kotlin has a style that we love we like how the language and the community works, but there are some things that we can add as value. Uh, if you came from that particular uh, background, if you came from a functional programming background and you want to try Kotlin and you, you want to use the constructs and the patterns that you use in functional programming languages such as Haskell or Scala, you can still use those patterns to uh, in Kotlin, but in a way that is still Kotlin. We are not trying to force, we are not trying to, to force uh, the Scala style of programming into Kotlin. 
in my particular case, uh, that's one of the motivations. I, I mean, I, I think that Scala still has good things that, that can be uh, done in Kotlin and the other way around as well. I don't think uh, Scala is better than Kotlin or nothing like that. And I also have a, besides my personal interest, I'm a functional programmer. I, I came to Kotlin, I love Kotlin. So I want also to do some functional programming in Kotlin because it's a very capable language to, to do so. And additionally, my company does Kotlin and Scala uh, consulting now. So uh, I want to bring the, the things that have worked for us from Scala in our experience with all of our clients and everything also to the Kotlin world because we want to keep programming. There's some techniques that are currently not possible in Kotlin and we love if they were possible. And we know that Kotlin and Scala are very similar and there's no shame on that. So there is, of course, uh, others that are not possible that might not be a good idea in Kotlin. So I just want to say with this that you know, we are, are an open group and we're open to the community and we like people to be also open-minded about these uh, functional initiatives. And we are also in class inclusive. There is room here for debate, uh, contributions, uh, contribute to documentation. Uh, say when you think something is not a good idea, everything will be considered. So with that said, uh, I think functional programming in Kotlin is possible. And I think uh, it's going to get better because uh, it's uh, it would be naive to ignore that a lot of programmers coming from Scala and other languages that support functional programming are also coming to Kotlin since it's gaining more popularity. So some of the features that they've been using, they're missing here. And they want solutions to express uh, something in a similar way. And that's true also for Java developers. So I think Kotlin is like a good multi-paradigm language uh, similar to Scala. And we can all you know, have a, a piece of it and a portion where we can do uh, our own programming style if necessary. And I'd just like to add also that in terms of the community and being inclusive and receptive, I also think it's uh, really admirable that you, you, the three of you have come together and joined efforts in, in this um, venture instead of, you know, I mean, choice is good and competition is good, but when people come to a new ecosystem, a new framework, and they see two libraries that are literally kind of like more or less the same. Um, putting that effort together and doing something as a joint thing, I think is fantastic. So uh, congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for coming on. And uh, I'll, I'm sure we can do a more extensive episode next time with more um, deep dive into all of these concepts. So thanks again, Sounds guys. Great. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank you.